Welcome to season three of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, mum, behavior scientist, and burnout survivor. I interview DEI leadership and mental health experts to uncover burnout solutions at the individual, family, work, and cultural levels. When mums thrive, the world benefits. Please take a moment to check out my website at www.drjacquelinecurr.com. Click on the free guides button and find solutions for burnout that support individual team and organizational change. If you're worried about regrettable turnover, but already have too much on your plate, I can provide a comprehensive roadmap to help you improve wellness, belonging, and engagement through an overarching burnout prevention strategy. So you can have thriving, diverse leadership teams. This week's guest, Laura Knights, is trained as a therapist, social worker, and in leadership development. She brings so much lived experience and wisdom to this episode. As the creator of the Black Woman Leading Program and podcast, she's seen the struggles of burnout and workplace trauma that Black women have faced. In her own work, she creates safe spaces for leaders to share their experiences, and she teaches leaders at all levels of an organization how to better support their employees. I hope you learn as much from this conversation as I did. I'm Laura Knights. I am a wife and a mom of a 12-year-old daughter and a six-year-old son. I'm the CEO and founder of Knights Consulting LLC, and we are a leadership and team development consultancy, really working with organizations to help them create more confident and conscious leaders. And I'm also the creator of the Black Woman Leading Leadership Development Program and podcast for Black women leaders and managers. Great. Thank you so much, Laura. I came to you through the Black Woman Leading podcast. And one of the things that I love about that similar to what I do, you interview people from business, from the community, from research as well. So I often see in your episodes, similar themes reflected to mine. I also love your emphasis on behaviors and behavior change and skills. But I think your women, I really noticed that in listening to your most recent episodes, are so self-aware. And I just so appreciate the way they can talk about their journeys and their experiences. So let me lead into that for you. Please describe your journey to where you are now in your career. Yeah, I've had a bit of an interesting journey. I started, if I go back to my undergraduate degree, I thought I was going to be like an accountant or some type of financial guru on Wall Street or something like that. And my dad was an accountant and I was a daddy's girl. So I think there was a little of an influence there. I went to business school and took those classes, excelled in them, had some internships and hated it. And so I actually moved over to organizational behavior and human resources management about the people side of business. And that's where I started my career. Had an interesting turn where I, a good friend of mine who actually was a mentor, I was getting, I don't want to say burnt out is the word. I was an early professional, but I wasn't having the experience in corporate America that I wanted to have. She had a nonprofit that had gotten a huge grant and it was a little bitty nonprofit. And so she had to really build out her team. And she asked me to bring some of my business acumen and my people management acumen to the nonprofit world. And so I was a nonprofit leader for several years. And that led me 
to become a social worker because we were working in a lot of these communities, doing work with people who were really experiencing the effects of poverty and racism and all of these things. And so I went and became a social worker and was trained as a therapist and worked as a family therapist for a little bit. And then transitioned before being a full-time entrepreneur for the last six years, I moved into a role in a university setting that was really the best of all worlds. We were doing programming around economic empowerment for the communities around the university. So the university was really committed to not just taking up space in the landscape, but really helping the communities around it be better and grow and get the things they needed. And as a leader in that program, I developed programs. I also developed staff innovation and staff training programs. So I got to use the business side. I got to use my social work side. I consulted on some of the kind of social emotional things that were happening with the communities. But that's really where my love of staff development and developing leaders came alive. I was a senior leader in that role for 10 years. And from there is when I launched my consultant practice, really taking some of that work I was doing in that setting to organizations growing that from there. So it's been an interesting journey. <laughs> that is a fascinating journey. And I love how you wanted to be the accountant because your dad was. My dad was an accountant. I wanted to not be <laughs> accountant. I was saying, you know what? I want to be the poor professor. That was my first job. Like type, this was before all the e-filing, typing up tax returns for his clients, which were small businesses. So it was interesting. I love that. I think it's so encouraging for other women to hear all these different types of careers that you can have, because often after burnout, we do have to change or transition careers. But I also think that's the depth of experience, depth and breadth of experience you bring to this. I really think we do need these different experiences. Social work and HR are just, they're similar in ways, but there's so many different skills and approaches that come from each of those. So I love that. And I love that you worked on economic empowerment around the community. Because again, once you start working with communities, it is different to individuals in organizations. So tell me a little bit about motherhood. How did motherhood change your career or approach to life? And I noticed with you, similar to me, there's five years difference between my kids. Yeah, that second one really taught me some things. You know what? I, I don't say this proudly, but it is part of my story that I am a recovering workaholic. And part of my journey, when I think of my spiritual and my emotional journey, really came into, I was the kid that wanted to be the best in everything. My parents really cultivated that, but they didn't force it on me. And I've done a lot of reflection about that. I really think that was a thing. Maybe it's a personality thing. I don't know. Always, I was a valedictorian. I was a senior class president and I was the prom queen. Talk about overachiever. Uh, and then I went to a, a great university on scholarship and everybody there was smart. And so this achievement was something that really drove me. And I can remember it very explicitly, even from being a younger child in, in, in elementary school and all of that. But as I started to, when I came out of college as a young adult, and I would say even before I had kids, little pieces of it was coming up. But after I had my daughter, I think I had a bit of a identity crisis, so to speak. I was so used to just going at a hundred and being the best at everything. And it had really become a part of my identity. And that served me quite a bit in my professional career, really served me in my educational career. But once I had a kid, 
it made me start to really question or separate my identity from my achievement. I had never had those thoughts before that who I was and my worthiness and my contribution was not predicated on how much I achieved. And I don't think that really became a question or a thing that I grappled with until I had children. And I think it's just this bigger acknowledgement of, oh my goodness, this little person is dependent on me. <laughs> like what in the world? And the identity crisis was around so much of my identity had been the go-getter, the doer, the all of this. And that really, I really grappled with that. Can that coexist with now being this little thing's mother? Like what? And so I started to go through that journey, but it didn't really set in until I had my second child and they are about five and a half years apart. When I had my second child, a little older, I really went through a postpartum, I wouldn't even call it depression. I would call it anxiety, which is a thing, but a lot of people only talk about postpartum depression. I went through a real postpartum anxiety period after I had my son. I started seeing a new therapist around it. It was really impacting my functioning. But even though I had all these supportive people around me, my husband, friends and family, I was not really speaking up about that experience because again, the identity thing came up, right? You are the one that have it together. How are you having this experience? And so that even further spurred me into really doing my deep work, my self-work to come to terms with that my identity is not one and the same with my achievement. And I would say that's been the hugest one that's really changed my sense of worth, my sense of even what I go after in my career. I'm leaning more into flow, things that I love, things that make me feel good, things I'm passionate about. And it's not just about needing to win, needing to be the best, needing to be at the top. I'm questioning myself much more on the other side of motherhood than I think I was before. Great. That's such a fantastic description about this challenge we have when we are achievement driven. And I can so relate to that. And as you say, it's then that identity. My identity was super worker, super mom. So then when I had troubles, oh my goodness, I was so ashamed to admit that I needed help because it didn't match with that identity. And yeah, I wasn't helping myself. But I think motherhood is such a trigger. It's such an opportunity to learn something about ourselves, but sometimes it doesn't evolve and come out positive at first. In a pretty way. It's not pretty all the time. I love that. I love that. So you've mentioned you're a recovering workaholic and some experience of anxiety. Do you feel like any time you did experience what you might term as burnout and, you know, as I know, you, you do now take great breaks from work as part of your burnout management strategy. So tell the listeners a little bit about either what you're doing to prevent burnout or if you really feel like you experienced it, if you relate to that term and experienced it at any time. Yeah, I think I have had moments of being on the cusp at different parts of my career. When I think about one experience where I do think I really felt it in my body. I had a lot going on at the time. I was a caretaker for my father for about six months before his death. And so that period was really a game changer for me. I had some gifts that came from it, but I also had some struggles that came from it. And that burnout piece was a bit of the struggle, just the emotional 
piece of that. My father was also dealing with some severe mental illness. So it was that kind of thing. I was also the only person that he would really allow into his space. So it wasn't like we could really, I could really share that. And then I mentioned earlier, I'm a daddy's girl. Just a sense of duty of wanting to care for him when I knew that we may have been coming to the end there. So it was that piece. It was also working a full-time job. It was also at the very early stages of being a business owner at the same time and trying to transition into this consulting and this vision I had of doing it full time. And then at the time, my daughter was three. So having a three-year-old and then a whole spouse and partner that you want to connect with as well. And so there was just a lot of pressure at the time. And I think I was just in survival mode. Like many people are, you're just trying to cross the things off, but really passing out at the end of every day, really feeling the distance in my marriage because there was nothing left for him at that time. And then also young mom, first mom, three-year-old. So all of the judgment that you're doing with yourself is, oh my goodness, but I'm over here. Is she getting what she needs? And I think it just reached a fever pitch. How it really manifested in me was a physical sense of burnout and the exhaustion, the not being able to sleep. I went to more emotional eating. So quite a bit of weight gain during that time. And I look back to that. I said, there are some positive things. It was also the scariest time in my life. So I feel like I emerged from that as almost fearless on the other side. It was like, if I could do all of this, oh my goodness. But there were definitely some scars while going into the process. And I think back to that time often as a point of gratitude that I transitioned from that, but also to remind myself of what that felt like and that I don't want to feel like that again, ever. So some of my strategies now, I don't think I've fully arrived, but some of the strategies now that I try to use is really building in help. So I spend a lot of money like paying people to help me with stuff. And even things like making the decision to finally hire someone to help me clean my house. And these things that culturally for me were like, who are you that you can't clean your own house? Like really giving myself grace around some of those things. And then finding breaks where I can take some extended time. So I took a one month sabbatical in December to rest. And my goal is to move that to at least two months a year and to get to a three month block at some point as well. Yeah, that's so challenging being that sandwich generation where you are caregiving for somebody elderly and a child. That's such a tough time. But I also really appreciate you mentioning some of the the cultural acceptance of potentially looking for care, because that was something I read about through some of my books and folks like Minda Hart started to say is the going to therapy isn't always culturally acceptable for Black people, but I was so pleased that she talked about it. And then in the book with Brene Brown and Tarana Burke, with a lot of different Black authors, and so many of them said, to help me through, I got therapy. So yeah, I really appreciate that that now, hopefully those, the cultural acceptance of that is changing. So let's talk about that a little more. We know lots of people don't necessarily recognize they are feeling burned out or that's what they're going through. But I also think often women of color are not included in those descriptions. So based on the women you work with in the communities, can you describe some of the experiences you've seen that women of color in burnout, how it's different potentially so that they can see themselves reflected back? 
In our program, Black Women Leading, we focus on kind of mid-career Black women leaders and managers. Many of them are, we put it in quotes, the only on their level of leadership. So it's a deep sense of isolation that they're experiencing in the workplace. Some of them are also um, experiencing microaggressions and discrimination in the workplace. And there's been some great work. McKinsey and Lean In released the State of Black Women in Corporate, where they really brought it to the forefront with the data to show that Black women are having the worst time in corporate America and that there's an emotional toll that it's taking on being isolated sometimes, but not always knowing if it's a safe space to show some of the concerns you're having or to speak up or to ask for help. So some of the things that we've seen in our community and some of the activities we try to do is really give people a safe space to actually verbalize what they're experiencing. All of our participants are very educated. They're not entry level. They're, you know, men and foot into senior. And we've had participants in our program that are really experiencing some emotional distress and they've never had therapy before. And part of their leadership development plan, they create a leadership development plan in the program. Part of their leadership development plan was literally an action step, find a therapist. And having people say, wow, this is the first time that I feel empowered to say that and not feel weak or not feel inadequate because I'm saying it. So we see some, what does burnout look like? Burnout looks like the physical impacts, of course, some of the things I mentioned, the changes in eating patterns, the sleeping things, a lot of somatic issues sometimes too, stomach ache, teeth grinding headache that I think are the burnout symptom, physical burnout symptoms for people beyond that are not just women of color or Black women. But we also see a lot of internalizing because, so we really talk about the importance of having mirrors to validate your experience. And that's what part of the purpose was for Black Women Leading, is that a lot of people are having these experiences and they are isolated, so they're not really sharing them. And they start to internalize that and say, maybe I'm the problem, or maybe I just need to toughen up these kind of things. And it's not until they're in a safe space and they start to speak out the experiences and they're having other people validating saying, you know what, that's not okay. Or what, how are you doing? And they're like, why are you asking me that? The things you've told me are indicators that you may not be doing well. And there's some awareness that comes to that. That's when we see people starting to recognize what they're experiencing. Now, we have had some people, too, that are very clear um, that they're experiencing some form of burnout. And that's the reason why they sought out the program, because they're in a real, a, a really tough situation. They may even describe it as a workplace trauma that they've experienced. And they're feeling it in their bodies. I've heard people, I've heard more than one woman say something like, I just felt like I was about to go crazy. That feeling like this brink of the mental health piece just not being where it needed to be. So I think it's a lot of probably the similar burnout symptoms, but we're seeing a lot more of internalizing that, a lot more of holding that, and just think, going through feeling ways and thinking that's normal until you hear that, no, that's not normal and it's not healthy. And here are some of the long-term consequences it's having on you. And I can see that's such a difficult position when you are the only, the one person there you don't feel in a good position to be able to share that with other people around you. Yeah, that's challenging. I'm so glad you provide these support and services. So how do you see diversity and equity and inclusion efforts 
intersecting with burnout and particularly how do we support the mental health of the work of people working in deep efforts? Yeah, the intersection, I think it's it's so many things that are aligning there. Even as we're looking at some of the research that's coming out now about the great resignation that's happening, we're seeing that a lot of the data is showing that people are leaving because of toxic work environment. And just, I think this COVID period and having your mortality in your face in a way that maybe it hasn't been before is having people really reflect on, man, what am I doing with my time? What am I doing with this job? I never really liked this environment and uh, really freeing them up to make major decisions that maybe they would not have made before. But I think when we talk about like psychological safety in the workplace, and is it a safe space for people to be authentic and bring their whole person and ask questions and things of that sort. I think that's where some of the DEI is happening. Like we do a lot of training around psychological safety and the the DEI piece is right there in the middle of the training. When we find equity issues, inclusion issues, all of that, we often find a lack of psychological safety as well. We also know from the research that people who come from a marginalized community, whether by race or LGBTQ or whatever that community is, they already enter into the door of organizations with a lower level of psychological safety, of trust, just because of the life circumstances and experiences. And then they come into organizations that may not be equipped to really provide that. And it's just like an extra weight on top. So yeah, they... It all intersects there. We also see that uh, particularly, uh, not across the board, but in the communities that I work in, a lot of the DEI officers are also the people from the marginalized communities. So there's a bit of experiencing the thing and then trying to educate other people about the thing. And that is a huge emotional labor. I saw a piece on LinkedIn the other day that was saying how DEI officers of color are are a huge part of the great resignation because some of them have been hired, especially in this last two years with the racial reckoning and all of this happening in America. And they've been hired as organizations have really started to tout what they're doing. And then they get into these roles optimistic that here I am about to put these equity strategies and do these things. And as they really start doing the true systemic work that needs to happen, they're met with a brick wall. And so they don't get the resources, they don't get the executive level support and sponsorship. And that's on top of the experience they're already having as a marginalized person in the workplace. So I think what organizations have to do to support the efforts and therefore the mental health is to really put resource, money, support, executive stamp of approval, executive sponsorship, verbalizing it from the C-suite down, that these things that our DEI team is working on is what is important. It meets the values of our organization. I think that's one of the critical things that impacts their mental health because they're not getting the resources. They're hitting this brick wall and feeling like, why did you even bring me in here? So I think that's a critical thing. And then I think also destigmatizing conversation around mental health in the workplace. As a therapist, a licensed clinical social worker, and someone who does leadership development work and consultation, the last two years, I would say after 17, 18 years of doing this work, the last two years of COVID is the most I have seen organizations open to talking about burnout, resilience, mental health. Because I think it's always been there, it's always been a need, 
but we're seeing it show up in the workplace in ways that we have never before. Also because the workplace is in people's homes now with the remote. There's not the boundaries that we used to have. And so I would summarize that uh, really giving the support, financial resources, people support to the DEI initiatives and backing that is something that's really important, not just lip service. Having resources and opportunities to really talk about mental health in the workplace. So many people have an employee assistance program at their job. They never even heard of it. They don't even know that it exists. Like really making that a regular part of our communication in the workplace and destigmatizing that. I think those are two starter things that are huge, that make a huge impact. Great. Thank you for all those examples there. And I was thinking about it myself recently, again, because I was just reviewing the National Academy of Medicine guidelines around healthcare institutions and for physicians, how can they make sure the mental health of physicians? And so they talked about have a mental health officer. And so that was my thought went straight away. I was like, but we've got DEI officers and they would be doing so much of the same role and they're not succeeding when the C-suite or even at the board level, they're not being held accountable. It's such a shame that so much of it is this PR, like you said, touting. So I think that's so important. Again, it's that systematic change. How do we really change it from the top and bottom? And tracking the metrics, like you say, like I've heard so many DEI professionals who come in as the expert and say, we got to get our dashboard together and see where we even stand to determine and the resistance they get to really uncovering the true metrics is an indicator that, again, you are not really invested in doing this real. So that was actually one of the things I was thinking about, how individuals can think about their companies, about whether their company cares or not. So one is, what is the investment? How much? Is it internal and external? Because quite often people say, oh, let me just hire someone else in to deal with this problem. And they're not willing to make any changes internally. And what assessments are they doing? So I agree that I think those things are keys. But I see it also in the context of working with people who want caregiver status to also be assessed so that we can see what are the services that mothers, families, or any form of caregiver, like you mentioned with your father, And again, that resistance. So my understanding from that resistance to that type of data, and potentially there can be legislation that requires you to collect that data. So that's potentially some ways to move. And like Hannah Beth Jackson in California is working on that. But I think it is this fear of uncovering that they're failing. And I'm just like, yeah, but of course you're going to find that. And I understand that fear of failure. Of course I do. Perfectionist overachiever, hate it. But on the other side of that, as we behavior change folks know, there are so many things you can do. It's not like we don't have solutions. So don't be afraid of discovering that you need some of these solutions. They, they exist. Yeah. I think it's also the fear too of leadership and really having to acknowledge that they are complicit in some of the failures. It's one thing to talk about the organization as another, 
but the organization is run by individuals. And so I think it's down even to our individual personal ability to really grapple with things like privilege, things like systemic oppression and racism, and to find ourselves in that, whatever side of it you're on. I think that is a fear too, that is inherent in some of the resistance to doing the organizational work as well. Thanks. Yeah. That's important to also add that to this understanding too. I'll come back to some of what we can do to recognize our privilege and complicity, but just sticking with a little bit about, because you obviously have trainings for individuals as leaders, but you also do trainings at the team and institutional level. And like we've been talking so many of these things, we need systems change. So what do your trainings at the team and institutional level bring? Yeah. And so the bulk of our work, although we have, of course, a Black woman leading as our special initiative, the bulk of our work is not necessarily streamlined in the DEI space. The bulk of our work is in the organization at large doing multi-tiered leadership development programs and also what we call team collaboration labs. So I'll give you an example. I actually had part of a training earlier today with a team that we're doing some sessions on. And the team collaboration labs are looking at the work that this team has to do together. This particular organization was a mission-focused organization, so a nonprofit organization doing some amazing things. We're looking at their collaboration. We use a lot of assessments. We've been doing quite a bit with the DISC behavioral assessment. And it's about getting these individuals who have to come together to accomplish these things. One, to get to know, understand, respect each other, working styles, communication preferences, and all of that. But also at the end of the day, it's about how can we increase the psychological safety on the team? How can we, if we're supposed to do this big work together, but within our interactions, there is no safety to really ask questions or make mistakes or ask. It's going to be I won't say impossible, we'll be limited though in what we can accomplish in our synergy together. And so we're doing work around educating teams on skills. How do we communicate? How do we give feedback? How do we have a conflict management practice as a team? We do a lot of norm building, helping teams build norms and agreements about how they're going to do this work together. This particular team, because they're doing work out in the community, in communities that are experiencing a lot of challenges, there's a bit of vicarious trauma happening with that too, because they're supporting these communities through very hard challenges and getting the residual kind of outcomes and burnout came up as something that is a fear for the folks. So we started to talk about what kind of work practices as a team do we need to acknowledge to take care of ourselves, to take care of each other? How do we put automatic triggers in, a buffer in between projects so that we don't end something that's really intense and then jump right back into it? How do we have a space to breathe as a team and to look back and reflect and acknowledge how we might need to take care of ourselves before we jump into the next thing. So those are the kind of things we're doing on the team level, helping them really deepen their collaboration and their communication together. When we talk about leadership, we speak broadly. Our ideal is to help organizations create these multi-tiered leadership development programs. So from individual contributor up to the C-suite, 
what does a streamlined leadership language look like? And the challenge is that traditionally, a lot of organizations will invest in like maybe that mid-manager, maybe even the frontline manager, or maybe some executive coaching with the C-suite. And it's very isolated. It's not equitable. Leadership development training hasn't been equitable in a lot of organizations. So what's happening is, okay, you're training frontline and middle managers how to be really effective. Then they get empowered and they start trying to be these leaders. And then they bump up against senior leadership who cannot offer them support and who don't know what they're talking about when they use this language. And so what we're trying to do is say, if we have a streamlined language of what leadership looks like here, based on your organization's values and your codified operating principles, what does that look like at a personal leadership level at the individual contributor? That's about how we communicate, how we collaborate. Then we go up to the people manager, frontline, middle manager. That's about how do we develop people? How do we motivate people? How do we manage performance? And then we go up to senior and executive. That's about how do we build strategy that aligns with who we say we are? How do we share the vision and cascade that down so people can take hold of it and do the work? So we're ideally trying to come in, have a similar language, but on programming on different levels that allows people to implement that language at their level. That's our big dream. We get to do that in some of our clients that we've worked with for a while, but some of them is baby steps. They want to focus on the mid-managers. Okay, we'll do that. But then they start getting the bumping. And then we say, let us train your senior manager so they can support this investment that you're making at this level. Or then the organization starts growing and we have to up-level leaders And the individual contributors have to start from scratch because we haven't invested anything in them. So let us prepare them so your succession and your pipeline can be fluid. That's the dream of what we're ultimately trying to do in organization. I love that. And it makes so much sense. And I experienced even that a little bit in, in my own work when I was leading my research group. I was transitioning into a larger leadership role and felt like I needed some executive training around that. And I was like, But what if I learn all this stuff and start saying things to my managers, my staff, my students, and they don't know what I'm talking about. So that's exactly what I did. I said, let's do it as a group because then we can all learn these things. So I think it's so important. You're right. It's such a wasted effort if you then just hit more barriers. I love that. That's really great. So let's talk a little bit about your podcast in terms of that was new for you last year. And I loved your description when you launched your podcast and reflecting back on your season one, just saying, why am I doing this? This is a lot of work. But tell me a little bit what you feel like you've learned from your podcast guests, because you've had such amazing guests. Yeah, I get little chills when I think about the podcast because it really has been a labor of love. When I started it, it was twofold. There was definitely a business strategy around it, right? Because it's an extension of our program. And so we thought it would be a great way to build visibility of what we're about and brand awareness. But on the other side, we were having just these really dynamic conversations in our Black women leading cohorts, these small groups. And I thought, man, we need to be talking to more people about this stuff. So that was that opportunity to really have the conversation on a broader scale. But what I can say I've learned, you know, the strategy for this season that we're in our second season has been a combo. So we always have some wellness experts so that mental wellness and self-care is a huge part of the initiative. So we always have some wellness experts. 
We always have Black women who are currently in the leadership experience. So they're participant researchers, if you will. (laughs) And then we have this season started to have a couple of spotlights on the C-suite. So Black women who are really the unicorn in their space, and they have raised to this upper echelon of leadership, and they're really looking back and reflecting on what they learned, what they wish they would have known, what they would tell someone who's coming behind them. And what I've learned is that no matter the industry, the level of leadership, that we all at the core are experiencing a lot of the same human emotions. Am I doing enough? Am I making, keeping space? Am I balancing all of my different roles? We never fully arrive, right? We're always evolving. We're always even challenged in some areas. And I think that has been refreshing. I've heard from the guests of people who have been beating themselves up. And I imagine moms, your population experiences too. I'm not doing enough. Oh my goodness, it's me, it's me. And then you listen and hear it's the human condition. It's all of us. It's all of us. Nobody is inadequate. It's all of us. So that I've learned. I've also just gotten a lot of really great just perspectives. I like to be a lifelong learner. I always like to know that anybody I come into contact with, there's something I can learn from them. So just hearing the varying perspectives, or you may have heard on the podcast, like someone will say a line and, and it just resonates through my body. And I'm then I start talking about passing the collection plate for them. But it's been such a learning experience to hear the different experiences. It's such a joy. It's really a joy. Oh, I'm so glad to hear about that. It's just, it is lovely to hear. And I appreciate too what you're saying, because I'm the same. I have that lifelong love of learning. And part of the reason I started this podcast was I was thinking about, okay, what are all the solutions I have to have for burnout? And I'm like, you know what? I don't have to have them all. How about I learn from other people what their solutions are? So that was great that I was like, okay, it's okay. I don't have to have all the answers and all these perspectives like I am learning so much. But also I think the other part, somebody reflected that back to me because this fear of I'm still on my journey. I'm still struggling with burnout at times. I can't be at the other side reflecting back as like the expert who has survived sort of thing. And although that part of that survivor is still kind of part of my identity because it felt like I could be more comfortable as a survivor than an expert. So that's what I embraced. We're all still in the journey and we're all still going to be in the journey. So that was so important for me when somebody said, by the way, you being in the journey is the good part. Because if you're this like, oh, I've done it all and you're reflecting at the other end, I don't know. It's not the same. It's not the same. And I love that idea of you saying, I can really stand in this survival versus the expert piece. I love that because as a survivor, your experience is your experience, right? It's yours. As the expert, there's always new stuff. There's always new research. But like this thing that I lived and came down on the other side, if nothing else, I'm an expert in that. And I can share that and give that contribution. So that's really powerful. Yeah, that's such a good way of expressing why I landed in that space. Exactly. We'll just tie up with two things. So one, I would love to come back to that topic of complicity and how we acknowledge our privilege. So what can white allies learn from your work and what can we do to support your work? Yeah, I think one of the key things when we go back to supporting the mental health and work of DEI officers and people who are doing this work is I think one of the biggest things that an ally can do is really take ownership for their own learning. I've heard a lot of people, especially in the racial reckoning period we've been in, 
the exhaustion of trying to educate folks as a professional, but also sitting in the real lived experience and not always having the words, or if you have the words, not always having the safety to really share intimately what that experience has been like for you. And so I think one of the powerful things allies can do is really take responsibility for their own learning and not put that responsibility on people of color or whoever the group is that you're an ally to educate you in that way. Now there's, of course, opportunities to share experiences and to give insight and all of that, but just really owning that responsibility to go and dig and go and do some research and go and sit with your experience and the things that you're hearing and to make some conclusions for yourself around that. I think that's a critical thing that people can do. And I think about supporting the work, not only what I'm doing, but what other people are doing. There's a number of things, right? So some of it is in what ways can you amplify the work, share that work, connect people who may help the work. So what ways can you amplify the work? When I think about organizations, so not necessarily talking about individuals, but when I think about organizations, it goes back to what we were talking about with the DEI work. What real resources, money, human resources, people, support can you put behind these initiatives so that they can really grow? I think, what is that saying? Where your heart is, there your treasure is also, or something like that. Real financial resources, real staff. So many DEI officers that I've heard that are coming in at a senior level and they're supposed to do organization-wide programming and they're the only staff person. It's just not even possible. It's not even possible to do it. I have had some that have asked me to come in, maybe to offer a program or something of that sort. And they've gotten pushed back because then the decision makers are saying, you can't do that training. And they're like, I'm trying to develop the program. I'm going to do the training. I'm going to do the coaching too. It's just not possible. So I think from an organizational standpoint, really not just putting the statement out there, but putting the money where your mouth is to really support these initiatives. From an individual standpoint, I think two things just off the top of my head is really doing some work, doing some of your work and seeking those resources and doing that research and learning some of those things yourself, but then amplifying your support and sharing that work that people are doing, you know, connecting people, those kind of things that all help to move it forward. Great. Thank you so much for those examples. And I certainly found the book Nice Racism very helpful because chapter by chapter took you through the questions to think about. So that's what I did for myself. I wrote about everything I could think of related to those questions. I also found these books by Women of Color helpful. The Good Ally, Right Within, The First, The Few, The Only, We Live for the We, The Pink Elephant, and Inclusion on Purpose. In particular, I found when the author of The Pink Elephant included a postscript with terminology updates, it allowed me to see we will be constantly updating our knowledge and that this process of learning is ongoing. Okay, so just to end, what is one behavior change you would recommend for working moms or for companies to start today to help them prevent burnout? Yeah, maybe I'll focus on the moms, something that's come up in some conversations I've had recently, not only in my own kind of personal life, but even in in our Black Woman Leading Program has been around like asking for help. And there's a number of places at work, it could be around like actually delegating to your team and releasing some of that control. I see sometimes with our community that hyper vigilance and holding on to control is because 
I'm already like trying to cross all the T's and dot the I's. I cannot afford for something to go bad. But if you're trying to move up the ladder, you can't be in the weeds if you're trying to go to more of a strategic leadership. So I think of asking for help. And that could, like I said, at work be about delegating. It could be about uh, asking for some additional resources that you need to get the work done at home. It could be back to that example of asking your partner to share the load a little bit more or even taking the step if you have the resources to do so and doing the thing like asking the cleaning lady to come in and help you out so you can have a moment to yourself or so you can arrest or whatever that is. I find that so difficult sometimes for working moms who are used to being it all and doing it all. And they're just on like burning the candles at both ends that in what ways, what areas could you use help? And how do you ask for it? How do you advocate for that? Which takes a little bit of self-work because for some people that means then that means I can't do it or I'm weak or I'm inadequate. So it may be a little bit of mindset work you have to do before you can step out and actually do that. But that's what I would maybe focus on. Perfect. That's such a great example. Thank you so much. And so do you have anything to say to listeners just to end up our conversation today? I love when the guest is the last person to speak. Yeah, this has really been an enlightening conversation. And I know the common thread probably for your listeners is that they are mothers. And so a lot of the things that we're talking about today, even asking for help, one of the things I try to think about is that I am a mom of young children now, but I'm really raising them to be healthy, contributing adults at some point. So when I get in those hard moments, I'm thinking like, you know what, you're raising healthy, contributing adults. That's what you're doing here. And so I encourage you, if it's about, you know, seeking out some help for yourself, if it's about advocating for yourself at work to think about these future, healthy, contributing adults that are looking at you and learning from your example and and let that be part of your inspiration. I think as moms, some of our biggest inspiration is our children and our families and pull on that inspiration, not just for your mothering duties, but for everything that you have to do, whether at work, your mental wellness, your self-care, your relationships, whatever that is, pull on that. What would you want your healthy contributing adult to be and do and see you doing. That's what I will leave with the guests. Thanks so much for listening today. Don't forget to check out my website, www.drjacquelinecurr.com for your free guides to prevent burnout. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. Take control, you're a